0: This message was presented at the GYC 2017 conference, Arise, in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Father in heaven, we're thankful that we can study the principles of heaven. We're thankful that the road ahead has clear light that we have a sure word of prophecy, that we've not followed cunningly divined fables. And I pray that as we study, that more than information would fill our heads, but that Jesus would fill our hearts, that we would sense a closeness to him and a deeper relationship with him. In Christ's name, amen. Now, most of you were here the last couple days And I want to review some of the things we've been going over and focus on different aspects of them. This class is not designed to speculate about coming events. You remember the Bible says in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, the secret things belong unto whom? The Lord our God, but the things that are what? Revealed belong unto us and his servants, the prophets. So we want to study the things that are revealed there are those people who look at last day events and they speculate about what might happen and they, and they come to you saying, we have new light on the future. Um, you know, I'm always concerned about that. God has given us enough light that is plain to prepare for his soon return. And uh, so let's look at some of the things we know. Where are we today? Where are we going in the last day events? One of the things that we observe with our natural eyes is an increasing frequency of natural disasters. We notice that there are more tornadoes and floods and cyclones and hurricanes that are taking place. Have you noticed that worldwide? More tsunami disasters. Did Jesus say something about that? Matthew chapter 24, verse 6 and 7, Jesus said, there'll be wars and rumors of wars. There'll be famines and earthquakes and pestilences. What is a pestilence? How would one define a pestilence? A pestilence is a strange disease, either on crops or on human beings, that science at this point has not been able to definitely resolve. Have you ever heard of pesticides? Yes. Why do they use pesticides? Because there are pestilences. Have 50 years ago, where there a hundred years ago, was were there very many pesticides that are being used? Not at all but how many times do they spray your apples today? Is there a great movement in America and around the Western world on organic eating? And are there dangers about pesticides today? So Jesus said there'd be what? Famines. There would be pestilences. There would be earthquakes. Uh, In Matthew 24, verse 6 and 7, Jesus adds to that in Luke chapter 21. He says, "Men's hearts failing them for fear and looking at the things that are coming on the world. What should we expect as the children of God? Jesus said, you're children of light and not of darkness. And you remember Ellen White's very clear statement in which she says, we who believe the truth should be watching for what's gonna come upon the world as an overwhelming surprise. So we see the steady tread of events. We look at natural disasters. A second thing that we notice is worldwide instability. There's a certain instability, certain uncertainty in the world today. When you look at the economy of the Western world and you see America's national debt that is well over 8% trillion dollars. That's just government debt, that's not the corporate debt. And uh, does the Bible talk at all about a rapid economic crash? Just take your Bible and look at Revelation, the 18th chapter, Revelation chapter 18. There is an instability, an economic instability. You look at many of the nations of Europe, take Greece, Spain, Italy, very serious economic challenges that they're facing. Look, for example, at Revelation, the 18th chapter, and here is God's final call to humanity. Revelation, chapter 18, verse 1, After these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great authority. The earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, the habitation of demons. Now notice verse 3, it's very interesting. For all nations have become drunk with the wine of, her, of the wrath of her fornication. So Babylon representing fallen or false religion. She commits fornication, illicit union with the kings of the earth. And they commit fornication and the merchants of the earth join her. So here you have a triumvirate, the political powers, the nations of the the world, the false religious powers of the world, Babylon, and the merchants of the world, the financiers. But notice what it says as you let your eyes drop down even further. Verse seven, in measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, So here is Western society filled with secularism that leads ultimately to a union of church, state, and the financial powers. And notice what the seventh verse says. In the measure that she's glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure, give her torment and sorrow, for she says, I sit as a queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning. Now, as you go down and read that chapter, look at verse 14. The fruit of her riches is gone. Look at verse 17. In one hour, such great riches came to what? Nothing. In one hour. That's a sudden financial collapse. Look at James, the fifth chapter. The Bible teaches that there will be worldwide instability. See, all of this is the setting for the mark of the beast, because ever increasing frequency of natural disasters that'll turn people toward God, there will be a true revival and a false revival. Worldwide instability, where the economic bottom falls out eventually of society, turning people to say, what must we do? Look at, for example, James, the fifth chapter. James, chapter 5, again, is a picture of the last days of of human history. And uh, here, in James, chapter 5, the Bible puts it very clearly when it says, James, the fifth chapter, and uh, in fact, Let's even go back a little earlier than that and uh, look at a couple passages in, in Scripture. Um, we'll look first at, let's look at James 5 on the latter rain. Therefore be patient, brethren, verse 7, until the coming of the Lord, and see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So, natural disasters, we've talked a little bit about worldwide instability, but under the power of the Spirit, the gospel will be proclaimed. Go back a little bit in the book of James, and um, look, for example, at um, the fourth chapter of the book of James. um, Verse 13 the fourth chapter, verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such in such a city. We'll spend a year there. We'll buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What's your life? It's even vapor that appears for a little time and vanishes away. In other words, here are people clinging to riches in the time of James. And the scripture points out, as we did read in Revelation that there'll be a sudden economic total collapse. Indeed, that is happening. James also says, you rich men weep and howl for your riches that have come upon you, uh, for for what's come upon you. So what are we expecting? Natural disasters, worldwide instability. There's an economic instability, but there's another uncertainty today. When you look at the number of nations that are developing nuclear weaponry. The world is unstable. Have you read anything about North Korea recently? And the instability of nuclear weapons. Now, the interesting thing that's happening there in just this last week is the real fear is biological warfare, chemical warfare, mounted on some of those missile warheads when you look at the book of revelation go over to revelation chapter 11 one of the most poignant verses in all the bible revelation the 11th chapter and look at revelation 11 and we're going to start there with revelation 11 verse 18 and verse 19. revelation 11 verses 18 and 19. the nations were angry your wrath has come The time of the dead, that they should be judged. When's that, the time of the dead? The coming of Jesus, right? Just before the coming of Jesus. That you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great. Now notice that next phrase, and should destroy those who do what? Destroy Destroy those who do what? Destroy the earth. A hundred and fifty years ago, did the human race have the capacity to destroy itself? 150 years ago, uh, 100 years ago, did the human race have the capacity to destroy itself. With thermonuclear warfare, we can destroy life on planet Earth today. Because if you ever had a major nuclear attack, it would not only devastate cities. I've read a Senate report on what a limited nuclear attack would do to America, even if it we're limited. And the Senate report said because the United States government commissioned a major report on what would a limited nuclear strike do to America. What would happen would be, not only would be there be hundreds of thousands of deaths with the immediate strike, it would interrupt the supply chain. So even people who were not immediately affected would be, it would be very difficult to purchase food because we only have about three to five days worth of food in our supermarkets, about three to five days. So a limited nuclear attack would totally disrupt the supply chain. In addition to that, it would affect the climate uh, dramatically. Now notice what scripture says, that Christ would come to destroy those who did what? Destroy the earth. So at a time that the human race was unstable. So you see these increasing natural disasters. You see the winds of strife beginning to blow. You see worldwide instability with economic instability, political instability. You see instability in the area of nations with the whole threat of nuclear warfare. Have you heard anything about climate change? Have we discussed climate change in 50, 100 years ago? No. And uh, what, what's the real danger of climate change? It is the increasing temperatures of the world with the polar ice caps melting, and as the result of that, the flooding of major coastal cities around the world. So there is this natural disaster and worldwide instability. What comment does Ellen White make about natural disasters? What specific comment? There is quite a fascinating comment that she makes. She says, and this is Great Controversy, page 589, in accidents and calamities by sea and by land, in great conflagrations, in fierce tornadoes and terrific hailstorms, in tempest, floods, cyclones, and tidal waves and earthquakes, in every place, and in a thousand forms, Satan is exercising his power. These visitations, what visitations? Hurricanes, tornadoes, uh, natural disasters, will become more and more frequent and disastrous. Destruction will be upon both man and beast. So what can we expect? Greater natural disasters, greater worldwide instability. This will enable people to have a greater openness and receptivity to the gospel. So if there ever was a time for the proclamation of the gospel with power, we have entered into that time. Secular people are being awakened by the natural disasters, by the instability of our world, and that is going to increase. If ever there was a generation of young people that should prepare to give God's last day message to the world, that generation is now. Because the stage is being set for the worldwide proclamation of the gospel. I'm amazed at what is happening even in our little church. In our church, in the last six to nine months, four very professional families walked through the door who had no contact with Seventh-day Adventists before and found us on the internet and said, we have been searching, we have been looking, and we found you guys on the internet. I was greeting at the door one day and a professional couple came in this man is a financial officer, a CFO for a large government agency in the Washington, D.C. area. His wife, he and his wife walk through the door of the church. We greet them. How did you learn about us? Oh, we were looking for truth. And the wife said this. She said, I just recently, three weeks ago, she was at one of our health programs and I talked to her. And I said, tell me your story again. She said, I was looking for meaning, I was looking for purpose. It was late at night, I was searching the internet, and I don't know how, Pastor Mark, but I came across your programs on the internet. Hope Lives 365, and she said, I, need, I needed hope. So I came, I watched it, and something touched my heart, and something moved in my soul, and I went and woke my husband up, and I said, you've got to see this. He said, what do you say, dear? Yeah, you've got to see this. And she said, we watched and we learned that you had a church here. We walked; They walked through the door of the church. A psychiatrist in our city walked through the door of our church, found us through a friend on the internet. The other day I was greeting at the door and I started talking to a man. He gave me his card. I told you last time about him from the State Department of the United States government speaks multiple languages, been posted all over the world. His wife watched us when they were in Brazil on our Brazilian Hope channel. She then moved to the United States. They're posted in Washington, D.C., searched the internet and found us. What's taking place? Thinking people. Sense that there are natural disasters, that there's worldwide instability that's taking place. One day, I was teaching in a school not far from our church, and a man walked in, sat next to me, suit and tie. Here's the first words out of his mouth. I know who you are, but you don't know who I am. (laughs) He said, let me tell you who you are, then I'll tell you who I am. And so he began, he had searched me on the internet, so he begins. He goes down through all the internet. You're this, you're this, you're this, you're this. Then he says, let me tell you who I am. He told me his story. He came to the United States as an immigrant, had no education, got a little job, bought a small car, began to sleep in the back of his car, learned that if you want to get ahead in America, you have to get some education. So he'd sleep in the back of his car. He would go to the library and study all day. He had no high school education. After months of studying, he took the GED and passed his high school equivalency. Then he kept studying. He applied to Harvard University, did so well on his entrance exam that he got into Harvard. He took medicine at Harvard University, but that wasn't enough for him. He graduated and got a PhD from Harvard as well as his medical degree. He became a teacher at one of the major, and I won't name the university, one of the major universities in Washington, D.C. Then he became the president of one of the larger universities there. He said, that's who I am, and let me tell you why I'm talking to you. I said, yes. He said, how much do I have to pay you to work for me? (laughs) First time I ever met him. I said, what do you want me to do? I'll work for you, but I'll do it for nothing. I said, I won't take a penny. He said, I want you to motivate students. He said, I've studied you on the internet. You know how to motivate students. He said. Um, I want you to motivate my students because I'm the president of the, one of the largest community colleges in America. Will you come and teach students, if they're getting a C and D, how to get a B and A? And I said, I'll be happy to do it. So I began going to his university, and they would put a banquet on for the students, and the students would come in, and you know what I taught them? I taught them the Adventist health message. <laughs> it was amazing. I'd tell him, okay, you want to, I said, I am not here to tell you what to do, but if you want to take your grades from a C to a from a D to a C, this is the way you do it. You study for 45 minutes, you go take a walk for for 15 minutes. And you repeat what you've been going over. And I talk about oxygen to the brain, red blood cells to the brain. Then we talk about Mrs. Finley's granola and eating more vitamin B, you know, and, and we get them get them on a good diet. We talk to them about alcohol, and I took them all the studies of alcohol, you know? 140 universities have studied alcohol. It's amazing. And you can correlate how much a student drinks and the grades they get, and so I said to him, "Look, whether you drink or not is up to you, but I'm just going to tell you, I'm here to help you get better grades. You want that C to go up to a B, then uh, you don't drink, you know." And so then I asked him, well, "How would you like to get on an airplane where the pilot walks on like this, you know, you know, he's half drunk, and the pilot walks on the airplane, you know, he can't think clearly because drinking affects the forebrain, conscience, reason? I don't have to get on this. I got to go back to teaching coming events. All right, <laughs> there is a, there is a." opportunity we have today with the natural disasters the worldwide instability for the proclamation of the gospel the seeds you sow today are going to be come to fruition tomorrow so this is our time now if you were the devil that's not very good if you were the devil if you were the devil And you saw you were creating these natural disasters as much as God allows. You see this worldwide instability. You see an openness to the proclamation of the gospel. What would you do? You'd palm off a false revival. You would do two things. You would work within the Adventist church to create a Laodicean complacency so people are half asleep. The second thing you do is within the church is bring in heresy and get people fighting among one another. Because you know that natural disasters, you know worldwide instability, you know there's an openness. So you'd try to do two things. One, you'd try to accomplish something within the church called a shaking, to get as many people out and to shake the Adventist church. You'd bring liberalism in on the one hand, you'd bring Laodiceanism in on the other, every wind of doctrine would be blowing. You would create, in addition to that, false revivals in the world. Why? Because you'd wanna bring people to the final test God would allow Satan to do that because as the final test comes, people either would receive the seal of God or the mark of the beast, and when they settled their conviction, the latter rain would be poured out and the gospel could be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Let's talk a little bit about false revivals and uh, what the devil is going to try to do through those false revivals. Now, We're going to talk a little bit about the shaking of Adventism. I just introduced this momentarily yesterday, but I wanted to go back to it again today and uh, look at the shaking of Adventism, some of the things you need to be aware of that the devil's going to do in the light of some of these false revivals. And so we're going to go over to this aspect of the shaking of Adventism and what the devil's going to do, how he's going to try to shake Adventism, some people out, and, uh, so, and, and how he's going to work powerfully to accomplish those goals. Now, we should not be surprised at what Satan is going to do because he has done this down through history. I'm going to look first at the New Testament. In the New Testament, did church and state unite? They did. You had the Roman church, the Roman state, there was a union. In the New Testament, did the Apostle Paul, was he imprisoned at times? And I want to look at some lessons from the New Testament. Uh, We're going to first turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14 to 19. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14 to 19. And I want to compare, I want to show you four different things the devil is going to try to do in the last days of verse history to get people out of God's true church. 2 Timothy, we're going to look at chapter 2 and... um, 2 Timothy chapter 2. And we're going to look at verses 14 through 19. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14 through 19. And as we look at that, we're going to talk about just how the devil is going to try to get people out of God's church. Let's look first, though, at just to get the setting, let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, then we're going to go to 2 Timothy. But 1 Timothy chapter 4 first. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, this is 1 Timothy 4, 1, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. What period of time is this? 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. What period of time is it? The latter times. Now, the spirit says, what spirit is that? The Holy Spirit. And he, he's explaining to us that in latter times, some are going to depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits. If they depart from the faith, what do you know about them? They used to be in the faith. That's right. So here are people. So the devil creates a shaking where some who are in the faith leave. One of the reasons they leave, some is they fall for the false revivals. Some fall to heresies. Now, I want to look at four agencies, four agencies that produce this shaking. The first is 2 Timothy chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2. And we're going to start with verse 15, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. I want to do that, don't you? How will you approve to God? A worker that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. In other words, know the word of the living God. So a shaking will come to Adventism. Why is God going to allow that shaking? He's going to allow that shaking because he is about ready to pour out his latter rain. There will be natural disasters that will increase. Worldwide instability that will increase. That will prepare the way for the... Proclamation of the gospel and God's final move. But the devil seeing this will shake the Adventist church, and we're looking at four aspects of that shaking. Now, notice, God invites us to rightly define the word of truth. Now, notice verse 16, 2 Timothy chapter 4, chapter 2, verse 16. But shun fa- profane and vain babblings. What is a vain babbling? A vain babbling is openly proclaiming something that God has not said and taking what God has not said and making it a divine test of truth and thinking that everybody else who doesn't follow that is an apostate. That's what vain babbling is all about. Now, we go down, and this becomes even more interesting. They will increase to more ungodliness. In other words, vain babbling is taking what God has not said, defining that as truth, bringing that as a test into the church. It divides the church, and it only creates ungodliness. Genuine revival leads us to prayer. You are not the Holy Spirit's brother. Neither are you the Holy Spirit's assistant. You are Jesus' assistant. Some people think that they are the Holy Spirit and that they are to convict the church and everybody in it of what they have done wrong. And so here, I remember I was getting up to preach once, and I was sitting in the front row and a guy handed me a note, and this is what the note says. The note says this, cry aloud, spare not, tell Israel my sins, their sins. So he sends me that note. I write on the note on the bottom, Isaiah also says, Comfort ye, comfort ye, comfort me, my people. And I send the note back to (laughs) him. All right, we're going now to verse 16. Shun vain and profane babblings, they'll increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenius and Philetus are this sort. What is the apostasy of Hymenius and Philetus? And how is that impacting the Adventist church today? Now, notice what it says. It says the message of Hyminius and Philetus is like a what, everybody? A cancer. How many of you want cancer? You're just praying every day. Oh, Lord, give me. No. (laughs) But what is this message of Hyminius and Philetus? It's like what? Cancer. Wouldn't it be interesting to know what that message is? I'm going to contend to you today that the Seventh-day Adventist church, in a various number of ways, that there are those both on the liberal right, liberal left and the conservative right that are introducing that heresy. Now, let's look at it. What is that heresy? It says they've strayed concerning the truth. So were Herminius and Philetus in the church? Were they in the church? Yes. yes. And what did they stray concerning? The truth. Now, what what was the truth saying that the resurrection is already past? And they overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands sure. Now, what did they say about the resurrection? They said the resurrection was what? Past. Were they right in declaring that there was a resurrection? They were. They were talking about the resurrection of the dead, incidentally. Were they right in declaring that there was a res- would be a resurrection of the dead? Were they correct? But what was their problem? Somebody said it. I heard it. The timing. Their problem was the timing. So what is the error? What is the error of Hymenaeus and Philetus? It is misunderstanding the timing of an event. Are any of those people today, we have any Hominius and Philetus that say when you look at the book of Genesis, for example... These are long ages, and, you know, maybe God didn't mean that the days of Genesis were 24-hour periods. Oh, we believe in creation, but this was just thousands of years, and this was just the way that Moses expressed it. Is there anybody today that says, you know, I'm not sure about the timing of the 2,300 days, why that could be reinterpreted in different ways? Well, we believe, sure, but uh, do you have any of the 25, 20 people coming along in the area of timing? Any of those kind of people? What is the cancer of Hominius and Philetus? It is taking things that God has said were sure and making those a test of truth and introducing them into the Adventist church and dividing the church to accomplish Satan's goal so that the proclamation of the gospel does not occur. Now, notice what Ellen White says. We're looking only at point one. How will the shaking take place? there'll be false doctrine introduced into the church. Ellen White is clear. She says this, Testimonies to Ministers, page 112. Now, what book is Ellen White writing? Testimonies to Ministers. These are Testimonies to Adventist Ministers. This is what she says. When the shaking comes by the introduction of false theories, these surface readers anchored nowhere are like shifting sand. So what do you find? These are surface readers. They read the Bible surfacely. They don't have any solid anchor, no biblical foundation. There are pastors like that, unfortunately, among us. There are administrators, unfortunately, like that among us. There are church elders like that, unfortunately, among us. There are lay people, unfortunately, among us. And what is going to happen? False doctrine will enter into Adventism false theories and as it does they will embrace it as reality and truth why because they are surface readers they have not saturated their minds remember what great controversy says only those that have what filled their mind with the scriptures will stand through the last great conflict notice this statement volume 5 page 80 the days are fast approaching when there'll be great complexity and confusion Satan clothed in angel robes will deceive, if possible, the very elect. There will be God's many and Lord's many. Every wind of doctrine will be blowing. The only solution is to have your mind filled with the word of God. So there is, the devil is going to shake his church, and there will be heresies that come in. There will be false revival that will come in. Now... The first thing we've noticed in this great area of the shaking is this idea of false revival. The next thing that we want to notice, uh, we've also noticed that there will be um, false teachings that come into the church. Now, the next thing I want you to notice is that the Bible talks about miracles in the last days of earth's history. Take your Bible, please, and turn And we'll just look at one text because of time. I want you to look at Revelation chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16. And we're going to look at the Revelation, the 16th chapter. Revelation chapter 16. And you're going to look at Revelation 16, and you're going to look there at verse 19 or verse 14, rather, Revelation 16 and verse 14. It talks about the Battle of Armageddon. And uh, Revelation 16, start with about verse 14. The reason I say about is that much of my revelation is ripped out of the Bible, and I have to do it by memory. And so as the result of that, I don't see what this... See, this page is ripped, so I'm kind of looking. Somebody says, why don't you get rid of your old Bible? I've been married to my wife 50 years. I'm not getting rid of her, right? (laughs) This Bible and I have traveled around. It's a little rumpled and wrinkled. I won't say anything more. But, um, yeah, Uh, we stick with the old. All right, Revelation chapter 16. It's in verse 13. Somebody help me here. They're the spirits of demons. Yeah, okay, I saw three unclean spirits. Like frogs, yeah. They They go to the kings of the earth and they do, what do they do? They gather them. them. What else do they do? They're working miracles, right? Working miracles. So what is it that eventually, what is it that eventually leads the kings of the earth, the merchants of the earth, and the false teachers of the earth together? It's false miracles. It's false miracles. Now, notice what Ellen White says about spiritualism. This is one that requires a lot of study, maybe not a lot of comment. I think this is one of the most shocking statements in the writings of Ellen White. Second selected message is page 380. Satan will work his miracles to deceive. Can Satan work miracles? Does Revelation 13 teach us that? He caused fire to come down from heaven, does great signs and wonders. Does Jesus say that in Matthew 24, signs, wonders, false prophets? Does Revelation 16 say that miracles are going to bring us to Armageddon? Yes. What about Revelation chapter 19, verse uh, 18 to 21? It talks about the miracles are those that lead them to accept the mark of the beast. So Satan will work his miracles to deceive. He'll set up his power supreme. He will make people sick then suddenly remove from them his satanic power and they'll be regarded as healed. Isn't that just like the devil? Isn't that what the devil does? He makes people sick, then he removes his satanic power. Now listen to this sentence. These works of apparent healing will bring Seventh-day Adventists to the test. These works of apparent healing what should we expect in many Adventist churches before Jesus comes? We should expect an emotional form of religion that ramps young people up based on music and emotionalism, that is very light fare when it comes to the prophetic proclamation of God's word, that actually dumbs down the intellect of youth and believes that all they can handle is an 11-minute homily that's a nice story, rather than deep biblical preaching. I will say to you unequivocally that that dumbs down young people, and you're far more intelligent than that, far more intelligent. That the heart of youth today is longing for deep biblical teaching. We should expect natural disasters to increase. We should expect worldwide instability. We should expect the greatest opportunity for youth to proclaim the gospel in the world that's ever seen. But the devil becomes so angry that he'll introduce false theories. He will introduce false counterfeit revivals that are based on emotionalism, that are based on feeling good rather than being good, that are based solely on the gifts of the spirit rather than manifesting the fruits of the spirit. We seek the fruits to reveal the character of Christ, and God gives us the gifts. Will God perform miracles? He will, but he'll perform miracles for young people who are on their knees pleading with God, seeking repentance of sin, saturating their minds with the Bible. We can expect that there will be false revivals that the devil brings. So how does this shaking come? First, by erroneous theories. Secondly, by false miracles. Thirdly, and all this did all this happen in the days of the Apostle Paul? Yeah. In the Apostle Paul, Eminentus and Philetus, false heresies. In the days of the Apostle Paul, were there again uh, miracles that were worked and false miracle workers? Sure, Paul contended with this. And uh, and there's a third area of the shaking. See, and uh, it's this. Here's your third area. In the light of Laodiceanism, those who are not deceived by false doctrine, those who are not caught up in false emotionalism, there are many who will go out because they love the world. And that's what Paul says as well, and I'll read it to you again in Ellen White. Uh, I'm showing you what shook the New Testament church, and parallel is going to take place. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. See, when you look at the New Testament, the things that shook the New Testament church are going to once again shake God's movement today. The same issues the church is going to face, 2 Timothy chapter 4. And uh, you're going to look here at 2 Timothy 4 verse 7. Paul is making a strong appeal. He's in prison. He says, I've fought a good fight, Uh, 2 Timothy 4 verse 5 Paul says, we'll look at verse 5 first, but you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Look at verse 9, be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Was Demas with Paul? Was he a trusted compatriot of Paul? But his heart was not there. Are there those people within the church today who are here but they're not here? They are social Adventists. They don't understand the urgency and the heartbeat of our mission. Turn to 1 John. 1 John. What took place in the first century will indeed take place again. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. What took place in the first century will take place again. Now, we're going to look at verse 18 and 19. John says, little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now there are many Antichrists that have come. What does it mean, the the Antichrist, capital, and many Antichrists? The Antichrist represents, of course, in its purest form, Satan. He is the one who is against Christ or anti-another Christ. As As you look at Revelation 13, the Antichrist principle is one when any human being exalts their authority above the authority of God. So the papacy that exalts its authority above the authority of God is a visible manifestation of the Antichrist principle in thinking it can change God's law from Saturday the seventh day to the Sunday the first day. What does it mean that many Antichrists, any time an individual exalts himself above God, that's the Antichrist principle. Now, but notice the next verse. It says, They went out from us. If they went out from us, where were they before they went out from us? With. with us. But they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Isn't that an amazing passage? Uh, there are those people today. What does Ellen White say? We must stand in defense and truth and righteousness that when what? The majority forsake us. Are there those with us today in body, but they are really not Adventists, truly in their hearts? They don't have that heartbeat, passion, and understanding of the prophetic nature of Adventism. They are with us, but they are not what? Of us. And what what does scripture say? And What does Ellen White say? That that third class will leave, like Demas. So here are four classes. We need to move because our class is going on. Okay, Um, there are four classes. Class number one, they'll be shaken out by false theories. Class number two, they will be shaken out by false miracles. Class number three, they will be shaken out because they love the world. Class number four, they are the conservative Laodiceans. They will be shaken out through Laodiceanism. And um, they will be shaken out. You can read that, of course, in Revelation chapter 3. So what do we expect? Natural disasters, famines, insecurity, worldwide instability, economic disasters, threat of nuclear war, great opportunity to proclaim the gospel. Satan sees that. He begins a mighty shaking. Some are leaving by false doctrine. Some are leaving because they love the world. Some are leaving because they are emotionally caught up in miracles. Some are leaving just because they're Laodicean and they can't stand the test. All this is taking place, the proclamation of the gospel, false revivals. Ultimately, the test comes over the mark of the beast or the seal of God. As men and women make their decision either to receive God's seal. Now, what is the seal of God? Let me read you the clearest statement in the writings of Ellen White on the whole subject of the seal of God. And uh, she defines pretty clearly what the seal is. And uh, before I read that, though, I want you to take a look at the. I want you to take a look at Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. We're looking at what? The seal of God. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30. Ephesians 4, verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ's sake has forgiven you. Now notice what it says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by which you are sealed. When a person is converted the Holy Spirit begins to work in their life in a process of sealing. So sealing is not an act, it's a process. Like a potter, like a potter shaping clay, God is shaping us and molding us. But there'll come a point when you shape clay that is shaped and you have to put it into the oven to be fired. When you put it into the oven to be fired, the clay is hardened, and you cannot change that ceramic after that without breaking it. So from the time you were converted, the Holy Spirit's working in your life to shape you and mold you. As we go through the test and make the decision for Christ, the Holy Spirit seals us, so he that is righteous, let him be what? Righteous still, he that is holy, let him be holy still. He that is unholy, let him be unholy still. So at the test, men and women either receive the seal of God or the mark of the beast, but never think that the sealing is a final act that takes place here. The sealing is rather a process that culminates there at that test. Now, how do we define the Sabbath as the seal of God? There is a difference between the sealing and the seal. There's a difference between the agency of the sealing. The Holy Spirit is the one that seals us. The sealing is a process. The Sabbath becomes the visible manifestation of the seal at the time of the test. The Sabbath is the sign that we are settled into the truth and that we cannot be moved at the time of that test. Now, in the fourth Bible commentary, page 1161, it says this, just as soon, and this I think is the clearest statement in the writings of Ellen White on the ceiling. It's fourth volume of the Bible commentary is 1161. Just as soon as the people of God are sealed in their foreheads, it is not any seal or mark that can be seen, but a settling into the truth, both spiritually and intellectually, so they cannot be moved. Just as soon as the God's people are sealed and prepared for the shaking, it will come. So the shaking starts actually back here, but the great shaking takes place at the time of the test. And... Uh, what is the seal of God? It is the settling into the truth, so intellectually and spiritually, so you can't be moved. How does that happen? The Holy Spirit works in our life. As that decision is made to, for Christ in eternity, a great shaking takes place and a great separation because there are those who at the test receive the seal of God, those who receive the mark of the beast. At this point, the latter rain is poured out because many don't understand the issues. The the early rain has been doing its work, the Holy Spirit swells into this great culmination. And uh, it's not that we wait for some great super manifestation, but God gives us more and more of his spirit to proclaim the gospel from the time of the test to the close of probation. You may get a lot of speculation about how long that's going to be, The truth of the matter is the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. The truth of the matter is we don't know. I'd rather spend time emphasizing what we do know than speculating about what we don't know. What we do know is that God longs for a people to reflect his image. He longs for a people to repent of their sin. He longs for a people to be open to receive his spirit of the latter rain. He longs for people to be committed to proclaim the gospel. Whenever every human being is has made their decision, probation will close, and the plagues will be poured out. Now, I want you to take your Bible and turn to Revelation 15 and Revelation 16. I have, uh, I have about four minutes. I think, what time is this class supposed to end? Oh, my. I have four minutes to cover Christ and the seven last plagues, but I know we can do it. This is a good class. What I want to show you in the next four minutes is this. Where do you find Christ? I want to show you Christ in the plagues. Okay? So, and I want to show you that the plagues are not arbitrary acts on the part of God. Revelation 15, verse 1. I'm going to move quick. Revelation 15, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, Seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is the wrath of God complete. What is the wrath of God? The wrath of God are the judgments of God, not the anger of God. Now, there are those who believe you will be raptured before the plagues. The Bible is clear. Verse 8, chapter 15. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. No one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Could anybody enter the temple before the plagues? No. So you know clearly that you're not raptured before the plagues because you can't enter the heavenly temple before that. It says it clearly. Now, when you look at those plagues, sores on the body, rivers turn to blood, sea turns to blood, sun scorches men, darkness on the seat of the beast, you say, where is Jesus and where is his love? Let me show you. Okay, verse verse, verse 1 and 2. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God, the judgments on the earth. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul, loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Sore from head to toe, a physical affliction. What did those who passed the mark of the beast say to those who would not receive it. They said, unless you receive the mark of the beast, we are gonna physically punish you. You will be beaten, you'll be imprisoned, we'll physically punish you. What does the first plague say? The first plague says to the whole universe, there is only physical security in Christ. There is no other place for physical security except Jesus, second plague. Then the second angel, he poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man. If anything like that ever happened, if every living creature died in the sea, what would that do to transportation? What would that do to economics of the world? The economics of the world would collapse immediately. If every living thing died in the sea, if there was no sea lanes of transportation, if no oil could be transported, if no food could be imported, the economic bottom would fall out. What did those who enforced the mark of the beast say? They said, unless you follow us, you cannot buy or sell. What does the second plague say? All economic security is in Christ. The first plague says all physical security is in Christ. The second plague says all economic security is in Christ. Third plague, third plague, what does it say? And this is where you get your key in the third plague. The third angel, verse four, poured out his bowl upon the rivers. They became blood. And I heard the angel say, You are righteous, O Lord, because you gave them, they shed the blood of saints in martyrs and gave them blood to drink. What did they say when they passed the mark of the beast? They said, we'll physically punish you, number one. They said, number two, you can't buy or sell. They said, number three, if you don't receive the mark of the beast, we're going to do what to you? Kill you. So what does the third plague say? Our life is hid with Christ in God. So the plagues are a corollary to the false system of the world. All physical security is where? In Christ. All economic security is where? In Christ. Our life is hid with God where? In Christ. What's the fourth plague? What happens in the fourth plague? The sun does what? The sun scorches men in the fourth plague. So down through history, Egypt, Eman-Ra, Babylon, Belmarduk, uh, Persia, Mithraism, sun worship. And what have they done? They've said they passed a Sunday law. And so what does the fourth plague say? All true worship is in Christ in the Bible Sabbath. Where is, what about the fifth plague? What is that? Fifth plague. Oh, you know that one? Fifth plague. Darkness on the seat of the beast. Where is the darkness on? The seat of the beast. What did they say? Look to the papal power for what? Light. But Jesus said in John 8, verse 12, I am what? The light of the world. So the first plague says all physical security is where? In Christ. Second plague says all economic security is where? In Christ. Third plague says that all what? All of our life is in Christ. The fourth plague says what? All of our worship is in Christ. The fifth plague says what? All of our true light, Jesus the light of the world, is in Christ. Sixth plague, battle of Armageddon. What do they say? They say, join us, our armies are powerful. But what is Armageddon? It is the final battle between good and evil. It says, all deliverance is in Christ. And the seventh plague says, Christ triumphs over all. The hailstones fall from heaven. Here is the good news of Revelation. Christ wins. Satan loses. Your physical security is in Christ today. Your economic security is in Christ today. Your life is in Christ today. Your worship is in Christ today. Your true light is in Christ today. You are on the winning side. Deliverance is in Christ today. And one day he will come. Jesus will win, Satan will lose, hallelujah, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can go from this place knowing with the assurance that Jesus Christ is the one who will redeem us at last, that all of our true life, all of our true worship, all of our economic security, all of our physical security, all of it is in Jesus. We thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2017 Conference Arise in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.